the first thing I would make sure for any founder, me, you, anybody listening, is that you don't get married to any new technology, any particular well of data, but that you get married to the pain. This is a better product original series focused on the power of data and more specifically, how to use data to inform product strategies. I'm Christian. And I'm Anna. Dennis Mortensen is the CEO and founder of X.AI, whose artificial intelligence takes the work out of scheduling. This is not the first company for Dennis, and his philosophy behind launching new ventures is simple, really. Observe first. And in his observations, the idea for X.AI came to fruition. I'm of the philosophy that you probably shouldn't try to come up with good ideas. All you do is observe friction and or pain in the world around you. And when you see that, you take note. So I have this little list of hate, as I call it, and anything which I dislike in the world, I just add to that list. Then when the venture comes to an end, you go back and you take a look at your list. And what you have there is three, four, five years of disappointment in one-liners. And in that list, the pain of setting up a meeting reoccurred many times. Many of you might be wondering what's on his current hate list. Don't worry, I asked. I try not to look at it. So if Christian and Dennis goes into business, the most likely outcome is that we will fail. That is the default outcome of any startup. However, if we try to really lean in and focus on it, we might just increase that probability. So we shouldn't spend our nights looking at other lists or having lovers on the side, which those ideas would kind of fall into that uh, bucket definition. So I never look at it. I only look at it when I get to the end. So Anna, to get everyone up to speed, the thing to note is that Dennis took time to think through why the scheduling problem still existed when so many solutions are available. And what he found is that many people don't want a new tech tool. Rather, their dream solution was to pass the task on to another human. Right, an assistant. And what Dennis is doing is using data to emulate what a human would be able to do with natural language. Getting to that point in this product, that was challenging. It is suddenly interesting when you attack a problem for where even crafting an MVP becomes difficult. I said, there's no half trip to Mars. Either we get there or we don't. And there's no prize for almost getting there. And it's similar in many spaces. We go with the self-driving car analogy for where even the current software in place, which is fantastic by any definition, it just doesn't work if 800 meters in, you hit a pedestrian and it only hits a pedestrian every kind of 800 meters, that is amazing, but obviously not viable. If we go back and I'll just talk about some of the steps, initially set out with some exposure to product expectation. So I simply hired uh, a couple of full-time assistants, found a good 50 friends or so in middle management, that I knew wouldn't have a full-time assistant and said, I have a set of assistants, it's on my dime. And the only thing you now allow me to do is to look at your requests and then they'll work for you. And we did that for months on end to figure out, is there a expectation that changes when it's not your assistant at your office 
where you inject some personality on who you are and how you would like the world kind of organized, but more of a service external to your office, and there's no kind of face attached to it. That certainly worked well for design input. After we've done that, the very first piece of software we built were one for where we crafted this annotation console so that we could start to label this data as it came in. Then we brought on thousands of uh, beta testers and hired the first kind of 15, 20 labelers to at least just figure out what should we label. And uh, I'm sure you can imagine some very interesting kind of board meetings for where we've been labeling data to uh, a dramatic cost for months and in for only to find out that we had an incorrect view of the world. And if you end up with an incorrect view of the world, what you labeled is now either of uh, little use and or needed to be discarded altogether, as in you just flushed the toilet. But when you flush the toilet, that's another $800,000 you just flushed. And you can only do that so many times. And that was uh, very daring. And we spent a hundred times trying to define, even just define what to label. So it was just a very elaborate process. But it's also wonderful where it is so unsexy that some people don't really think about it or lean into it. But you can win on the better data set because the better data set just allows for the higher accuracy. And some products simply can't exist in a low accuracy environment. We can go back full circle to where we started, right? For where the self-driving car at 98% accuracy is no self-driving car. As in, we just don't have it yet. Some other products can easily live with 60%. As in, go upload your next image to Facebook that pick up three faces out of five. Oh, that's not too shabby. Thank you very much, Mark. But that is uh, only viable for some products. So we just really spent a lot of time defining the data, a lot of time engineering these labeling uh, software, a lot of time training the personnel, and then and only then did we start to kind of work on the models. I think that was one of the last things uh, we did. If, I, if I'm hearing you, it seems like what you would describe as a highly data, data science, maybe machine learning oriented solution today started out really with a lot of manual labor with that in mind. You sort of subsidized the data with people that were constantly taking it in for a really long time. Is that is that, am I capturing that right? I think there's a difference between how most people will interpret data labeling and human in the loop. So in any one of those, or in most of those self-driving cars today, you have a safety driver. His job is really data labeling. That's why he's in the car. He's actually not there to drive the car. He's there to make sure that if we make an incorrect prediction, I can correct it either in real time and or uh, provide other information so that we get the best possible corpus. And for us, it was really never about uh, scheduling the meeting. It was about assembling this uh, corpus so that we could start to make these uh, predictions. But we had to schedule real meetings to make that happen. Kind of like uh, Waymo needs to get some of those Toyotas on the road to collect some data. Then you can start to do synthetic uh, data later on, but you need some real-world data first. So it's less about this idea of having humans in the loop to how to assemble your MVP. Sure, you might need to do all sorts of shortcuts to kind of collect some of this data. But for me, that was the, uh, the least interesting part. That was just a necessity to kind of solve the, uh, the, the cold start problem. We work in 
all sorts of industries. So we do understand the complexities of time that you're referring to. How do you find value, get to value quickly or show, continue to show value as you take that time to kind of get things right and make sure that your labeling is correct to feed everything else? You certainly want to attach yourself to some set of metrics that allow you to move forward because it's very easy and we all have been in that situation for where you could turn this into some sort of decade-long academic endeavor and not really a startup venture for where there's some sort of reasonable output or outcome in the near term. And I wish I could tell you that we saw it in the most crystal clear way from day one. Uh, we didn't. So I'll give you just a few pointers here. So when we raised our initial seed round, we didn't make any other promises for that seed round that we would spend the next 12 months in collecting some initial data. And that data will either verify if this is tractable, as in it is indeed doable, and it will provide us some insight into how much additional effort we would need to apply to finish it, or give it a thumbs down and say, we are average smart, we spend a year with the best of our friends, and we couldn't see a way out, and all you lost was $2 million, and we go home. That was the only promise, not an MVP, not uh, the first uh, thousand uh, customers, not uh, X dollars and MRR, just a thumbs up or a thumbs down. And I do think some ventures, uh, not just the one that I'm involved in, should be allowed to have uh, ambitious goals that uh, rhyme with that. Some things you can uh, do on a weekend hackathon or three months in Palo Alto, and there's nothing wrong with that in outcomes and Airbnb. That's awesome. <laughs> hey, I also want to be Airbnb. Perhaps a little less so today, but generally speaking, I also want to win that uh, startup lottery. But some of these do require a just longer time horizon. And some of them are just obvious. Building a car or sending people to Mars, you won't do in a weekend hackathon. So you probably need to invest half decade, decade long time, energy and money into it. And this was just one of those, perhaps on a slightly more compressed scale. Why not go leverage data sources that are already out there, like integrations, build out those, start listening. I mean, it seems like that's another viable path that I hear a lot more about these days is like all the data sources, all the APIs that already exist, go out there, make sense of that, and then start you know, building off of that. What, why, why not that approach and instead sort of going at your own and building your own new data set? So we tried very hard to see if we could not avoid being married to this uh, data collection endeavor because it's so expensive. And just to give you an idea, we initially started uh, even pre-venture, just hacking away on the Enron email data set. So you can get access to, what is it? 130 some odd executives, scheming of course, and 650,000 some emails. Plenty of those be about meeting up, but it was so noisy that we simply, we couldn't make sense of it. Doesn't mean there's not another 20 guys from Cambridge right now being able to make sense of it, but we certainly weren't able to make any real sense of it to the degree where we could make highly accurate predictions on it. So we ended up not playing the lottery of forever pursuing some other source, which might ultimately be cheaper, but we might not find it. And then at some point say, if we label it, it'll be costly, but we can see an end to it. Uh, if we have enough stamina, 
enough time, enough capital, but there's certainly an end to it. So that was the route we picked, but we actually did try to do something very close to what you suggested, but for this particular venture, it wasn't viable. And I think the jury is still out on, say, the reoccurring uh, self-driving car analogy in this conversation for where Waymo went about this in very similar ways to what we've done for meeting scheduling. And Tesla is perhaps doing something closer to what you suggested, where I'll just put a set of cameras on all our cars, see what kind of comes out of that, and then uh, perhaps that will be good enough. And perhaps indeed, that might just be good enough. So we have people listening to this podcast, understanding how to leverage data science for, for new startups. You know, I'm curious from your perspective and your experience, does the different type of thing you're solving change the approach that you go with data? So for, for calendars, for scheduling, um, you mentioned that the data was too noisy, it's too difficult. You've mentioned the relative way people or colloquial way people talk about time makes it very challenging to just go scrape data and make sense of it. But is there other factors you look at if you're starting a, a product based on data science that helps you figure out what would be your right initial approach? I think the first thing I would make sure for any founder, me, you, anybody listening, is that you don't get married to any new technology, any particular well of data, but that you get married to the pain. So we certainly saw that people were in meeting scheduling pain, and that is what we got married to. The side effect was that we believe one of the better ways to solve it would be to also support an agent. That agent then could only come to life through this uh, massive amount of data collection that I just described. But it was always about removing the pain. What we then also found, and we could talk about that, we have set out to kind of replicate the experience of you having hired Tom to sit in your office. And we did just that. We had the exact same thought, line of thought, as you just described. However, over time, what we found in the design phase is that people actually don't want us to replicate Tom. They want some of the components of Tom, but they also want some of the superpowers of software. And we ended up in some of our designs simply because we don't have, say, in desktop software, we have half a century of best practices. So you and me can put in place a very robust piece of desktop software. We have a decade plus set of best practices for mobile apps. So we would know how to put together a decent app uh, this weekend if we wanted to. We actually don't have many best practices yet for intelligent agents. We have plenty of people who did a chatbot here, did some voice control system over there, but we don't really yet have a set of best practices for where we know exactly what to do and what is a good design and what is a potentially suboptimal design. So we made plenty of mistakes uh, along the way and uh, hopefully learned a little bit. And the one thing I've certainly learned, uh, I'll just let's on to two things that you said, uh, because again, we we're very similar in thinking when we started. One, it is never about replicating a human experience, about figuring out exactly where it was seamless in the human to human experience. So you take advantage of that and where the human to human experience is slow and cumbersome, so you can remove that. So on that point, some of our early designs was just too verbose and too many emails back and forth and just kind of looked like what Tom would do 
a little bit late to respond, too many emails asking for Wednesday, if not that, then Thursday, if not one, then three, if not three, then four, okay, four, can you send the invite? Like what you and I have experienced when we deal with other people for where, sure, some of it is, is nice, such as I can just immediately describe to Amy at XAI what I want, but then I want different things from there. So that was very interesting. We can talk about some of those design principles. Another one was uh, we aggressively humanized the agent to begin with, to the degree for where perhaps even just as a geek, we would kind of sit with this uh, lean back experience and look matrix style on the screen to see how many toying tests that we won on a daily basis. And sure, you can do some high fives around the office when you win, as in somebody never really figured out this was not a human, but you haven't really won anything. You might've won some uh, internal joy for a split second, but you haven't won anything. When you lose though, you lose dramatically. I said, somebody wanted to reschedule a meeting and wrote a paragraph long excuse for how they couldn't make it today because their daughter is sick, but only to figure out this is a machine. And that is not a setting you want to be in. So we quickly figured out that humanizing the agent should not put you in a situation where you are mistaken for a human. It doesn't mean that you can't have a humanized agent, but it should always be understood as a software agent. And we've actually gone through multiple iterations to make it crystal clear that you're dealing with a machine agent, but hopefully one that does the job so well that come the end of it, you still say thank you, but it's not one for where you should be confused. Well, maybe let's talk about that. Through the brand, Amy and Andrew Ingram. So they have LinkedIn profiles, people-wise, but your product site doesn't really reference them, at least as much as I can see from, from looking around it, it looks like a pretty traditional style of like a data science oriented product. It's not overly like showing, you know, illustrations of what they look like or things like that, but, but clearly there's some balance there of personification. So when did the concept for Amy and Andrew Ingram start and, and how did you start to bring that to life? So we brought it to life on day one. And if you went back and looked at all of the iterations, you would see that they would have been front and center on day one and less so today, May 7th, four or five years later. What they do do for us or what any humanized agent do for you is immediately explain or suggest that you can make natural language requests. So I assume I can email Christian anything, even in my broken English, and he would somehow get it. I said, hey, Christian, would you get some bagels and some Diet Cokes and meet up tomorrow at one? And you would figure that out. And I could just write it as I say it. And that is certainly an advantage because that will shortcut some of the education you would otherwise need to do on many other more traditional software products where, hey, uh, you need to go uh, to the uh, top menu, pick uh, this category, go down, do this, and then you uh, market like that. And not impossible. And some of it is so intuitive that I don't even need to educate it because we have 10 years of best practices. Many times it will come with some education, some form of onboarding, however simple that onboarding is. And that ability to humanize will have a lot of normal people immediately understand it. Okay, I can just write anything, which is both a blessing and a curse at the same time. A blessing, of course, because my mom can get started now, uh, a curse because they might extend 
or assume they can extend the capabilities of the agent because I wrote it in natural language, so I can just write anything. Not really. You could write anything to do with meetings, but outside of that, the agent doesn't understand uh, what you are saying and will uh, simply just ignore it. So a blessing and a curse. We're certainly trying to take advantage of the blessings, which is that it becomes very easy for people to get started. On the curse end, we, again, uh, coming back to what you said, we have tried to downplay the agents as individuals because we saw that the more we do that, the more people extend their capabilities. And that ends up in them being disappointed. I said, why don't you do that? Because we don't do that. I said, we schedule meetings and uh, the whole website talks about nothing but that. But I see how you could have imagined we could potentially also do this, but we don't. So we tried very hard to eliminate those uh, curses that kind of come along with that. Now, there's also the handover itself, which you need to train on. And here's a funny anecdote, perhaps. If you need, this is probably not even true anymore, but, but there are moments where some people suggest if you need to figure out how some new piece of software functions, you go ask one of your teenage, your teenage daughters, right? So uh, I get it. Snapchat is just like Facebook, isn't it? And then you can get that next half hour on why it's not the same. And somehow you might be able to get the difference. And you see that in many knee-jerk reactions where just go young and kind of see uh, how this might work. What we've seen is almost here, the opposite, for where if you have an agent here, you kind of an immediate manager. You might be a manager of a piece of software, but you're still an immediate manager. Most people are shitty managers. As in, even people who are managers today are shitty managers. And it takes a certain skill to be a good manager. One of those skills is you being direct. The worst managers are those that are ambiguous about what they want from you. Just be direct as in, Christian, I need you to do this for me this week. So come Thursday, you deliver that. Okay, I know exactly what to do. I know exactly what the outcome is supposed to look like. And I have a deadline attached to it. What we saw with very young people uh, when they signed up for our product was that they were just shitty managers. And sometimes they would even do things like CCN, Amy and Andrew early on without even having a request. We then asked them, why did you CCN the agent? Do you know what? Just in case we needed to do a meeting, then they would know. Oh, yeah, I've seen real people do that as well, like CC and everybody, just in case you needed to know. Don't bloody CC me in unless I need to know whether I'm a machine or a human. I don't want to be on your CC. But it was very funny to see that it was almost the reverse. The younger you were, the less of an understanding you had of that of doing a good handover. And if you were somehow 42, you already managed uh, plenty of teams, you were kind of uh, up and rocking almost immediately. You uh, lost the usual kind of courtesy and you just tell people what to do because that's the best way of managing. Funny little uh, side note. Yeah, I, that's, that's funny. I, I never would have thought that, but it makes total sense when you explain it. I think it's so fascinating how hard your team worked to make a natural feeling experience. I think it's just like an interesting counterintuitive idea how much data science goes into making something feel human and natural. And this idea that maybe you went too far, it, like you did it too well, so you had to kind of pull back and focus the capabilities a little bit better. I'm curious, if you were to do it again, would you have 
personalized uh, Amy and Andrew as much as you did in the beginning? Or would you have maybe pulled back from that? Like these are independent people and be branded or, or think about that brand experience in a different way. So if you could go back on anything, you would always change something. People who yes, they wouldn't change anything. I'm not sure I believe. As in, I would, first of all, have picked a smaller slice of the meeting scheduling universe. So you can imagine this kind of McKinsey style two by four, right? Internal meetings, external meetings, one on zero, one on one, one on N, N on N. Those are the eight types of meetings uh, that you can do, meaning we are now a one on N external type meeting. And instead of trying to solve that full map, I could also just depict one of those squares and solve for that. I could also have chosen not to do the whole conversation in natural language. I could have picked just, say, the handover. So I would certainly have limited the scope if I've had a full understanding of exactly how many struggles would be attached to it. I would also, again, now that we learned a ton of good design principles around how to do good agents, been less aggressive on the personification of the agents and been more willing to both of them look like, feel like, act like software. That sounds like a degrade, but it's not. It's just one for where if you're using software, it should look like and feel like software. It doesn't mean that you can't take advantage of certain innate things we can do as humans, but that's what you sprinkle on top, not necessarily the primary foundation. So plenty of things uh, I certainly would change uh, along the way. I do still think the choice we made was allow you to not switch context, meaning I email Anna saying, hey, I'm in town for the next two days. Do you got time to meet up for a diacle? And as you read that and you sit in your email client, there's nothing more lovely than using, oh, yeah, Dennis is a fun guy. CC and Amy at XDI. Dennis, let's find some time when you're here for half an hour. Pop by my uh, office. There's something very nice about not having to contact switch or let me go to my calendar. Let me find some times. Let me email back Dennis. Uh, hey, I even want to pitch him for some uh, this and that. Oh, I need to follow up with him. No, you just want to see him and Amy, have her kind of take care of it, archive that email, and the next thing you see is some insert on your calendar. That I really like. That was super strong. But uh, some of the, I wouldn't call them gimmicks, but, uh, but some of those design choices were, were not right. But again, we, we didn't know any better. So far, I think you've given a lot of great details on the journey that you've been on, but you have a lot of experience with data and data startups. And I, I want to get some more of your thoughts. So along this journey, where do you see data headed now over the course of, say, just even the next three years, which you know is an eternity in, in tech? But what, what are you starting to see happening now that's either affecting your work or things that, you know, if you were starting something new, you would want to be aware of? A word of caution to myself and anybody else doing any venture where the primary foundation is data, is that you own the data source. So building a data-driven startup on somebody else's source is so fragile or so married to risk that I would certainly be personally unwilling to do so. And a good example is you get uh, five friends together and you build something 
off of the Twitter fire hose. That is, at least to me, not interesting. That is a well of data that you don't own. And I think any true data-driven startup must own that. It could be that the source for that is a uh, exhaust of uh, other platforms, but you need to make sure that you will forever have access to that exhaust of data. That would be my first word of caution. And I think perhaps too many people over the last decade didn't really think twice about whether they would forever have access to that uh, source. Do you think it's a good way to sort of at least give you some training wheels to start as you do that, as long as your plan is to be pulling off your own data source using those to start? No, I'm I'm not sure I'm convinced of that. I think you knowing what data to mine for, figure out where to mine it and how to refine it. That is a primary task, not a, I'll go figure that out later. But if you don't know where to mine it and how to refine it, well, we're eventually doomed, and, and that you must know. It might be overly costly to begin with, and you now need to kind of figure out how can I get started on very sparse data sets. That, I think, is a different challenge, perhaps uh, equally interesting, but I certainly know that uh, I would uh, own and operate the, uh, the data set. You've mentioned design principles, um, design principles as you, as you sort of figured out, and you mentioned that there aren't best practices for intelligent agents. And this is, could be a much longer conversation, but I just like just to kind of wrap, I want to understand how you view design's role in coupling with data science. Like what is the purpose of it? How does it drive, how does it drive your product or how does it uh, get fed through data? Like what does that relationship look like in your mind? If you end up with an aggressively data-driven startup and a product that hinges on good data, the immediate understanding would be one for where data science rules and that they dictate the direction. But many times it's almost the opposite. It's just one for where you now say for my product, figure out that you need also to learn about out of office as a concept, which I need to be able to deal with. Then that's really a request that comes from product. They'll design around that by looking at all the kind of traditional sources, whether that be user interviews or surveys or instrumentation on the product itself, it doesn't matter. But somehow they came about some sort of insights and requests and have some user stories attached to it. Then they go to data science saying, we should be able to predict this and that. Now it's on data science to say, hey, we actually already have that as part of our data set. It is not labels. But I think we can label for this. And I do think we can create a set of models that can certainly tell you whether an incoming email is an automatic office response or not. Give us enough time to kind of tell you that and whether that could become a feature. So that's a very strong synergy between product and data science. There's not one for where it is always an entirely data science driven. It is very often, and for us, most often driven from the user and product end of it. Join us next week as we continue our understanding on how to leverage data science with Kendra Clark of Sparks and Honey. Thanks for listening to the show this week. If you're looking for more resources on how to design, build, market, and sell better products, then head over to betterproduct.community to join, well, the community. And as always, we're curious, what does better product mean to you? 
shoot us an email at podcasts at innovatemap.com.